You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Human Circus. Between the years 1232 and 1251, Albert de Troisfontaine worked on his Chronica an account of history, all the way from the world's creation up to his own time. I'm going to reference his writing here as a kind of the story so far for the Prester John series. Of the year 1165, you read the following. And at this time, Prester John, king of the Indians, sent his letters full of astonishing things to diverse kings of Christendom, but especially to Manuel, the Emperor of Constantinople, and to Frederick, the Emperor of the Romans, out of which letters this was written. Prester John, King of Kings and Lord of Lords of the Earth, by the power and virtue of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, to Emmanuel, Governor of the Romans. Of 1170, you read... Certain letters of Pope Alexander were found, which he sent to Prester John, mentioned above, who was also carefully instructed on the faith and customs of the Holy Roman Church, by a certain Bishop Philip, ordained by the same Pope. This Philip had been sent across to the Roman Pope by that same Prester John. Of 1220, the story continued picking up on matters which I talked about last episode, but from a new perspective, one benefiting from hindsight that those crusaders did not have. After the capture of Damietta, a certain prophecy written in Chaldean letters was found in the temple of the Saracens, which Lord Pelagius, Cardinal Bishop of Albano, and the legate to those parts made to be translated into Latin and sent to Rome to the Lord Pope, which a certain Master James, appointed legate to Ireland by the Lord Pope, carried from Rome to Clairvaux, continuing on to Ireland. Many things were present in this astronomical prophecy about the things which came to pass in the Promised Land, and that in the twenty-ninth year from the retaking of Acre, Damietta would be captured by the Christians, and many things are written there about Cardinal Pelagius, which have turned out differently. 
Indeed, a prophecy of this sort, although it speaks the truth in certain things, still deceives in many things. It was also written in that prophecy that a certain king would come from the eastern region, who will be called David by name, and that another king would come from the western region, who will destroy the land of the Saracens up to Jerusalem. Of the following year, 1221, Elberic wrote, Then the highest pontiff, Honorius, wrote to all the archbishops of France that Cardinal Pelagius had written from the overseas regions that King David, who was called Prester John, a God-fearing man, having passed Persia into his powerful hand and having subdued the Persian sultan on the field of battle, invading and occupying his land for twenty-four days, possesses a great many fortified cities and castles, and he proceeded so far from that region that his army extended for ten days from Baghdad, that most great and famous city, which is said to be the special seat of the caliph, which the Saracens called their highest priest. The passage repeats many of King David's deeds of conquest, but it ends on the following note, with a new dawning realization about the promised king. Quote, this same King David was delayed around these parts for almost two years, and many more incredible things were said about them, but these few will suffice. Some say that they are neither Christians nor Saracens. Some said it, that this king and his people were neither Christian nor Muslim, but it was uncertain. A 1234 entry, listing the nine orders of Christians who celebrated at the sepulchre in Jerusalem, included as the eighth that, quote, whole multitude of Christians, which is subject to Prester John. Then, in the year 1237, came a new twist, a new accommodation to the events of the day. Quote, at that time arose the Tartars, a certain barbarian people under the power of Prester John. When Prester John was in battle against the Medes and Persians, he called them to his aid and placed them in forts and fortifications. The Tartars, seeing that they were stronger, killed him and occupied his land for the most part, setting a king above them as though he was Prester John. And from that time on, they did many evils in the land, such that this year, they killed 42 bishops in Greater Armenia. The increasing proximity of the Mongols had made their association with Prester John, or King David, awkward. But this, in Alberic's writing, was only one solution to that problem. There would be others. Hello and welcome. My name is Devin, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that traverses medieval history through the stories of its travelers, or, as the case may be, its fictitious priest kings. This is a podcast that is supported by Patreon, so if you are enjoying it, and you are in the position to do so, please do consider coming aboard on a pay-what-you-want basis. 
You can do that right now at patreon.com forward slash human circus. This episode, I want to thank the following new patrons for their support. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Christy. And thank you, Janet. Thank you all very much. And now, back to the story. Back to the story of Prester John. Last time, the last two times, actually, we were covering the impact of Prester John on the Fifth Crusade. The impact of an idea, really. The consequences of prophecy, rumor, and belief. The way things could go when a game of broken telephone led you to believe that a Christian emperor was coming to sweep you to victory. But you ended up with Genghis Khan. You'd been told of immense armies forming up beneath the cross, but you got Mongols instead. As those Mongols grew ever closer, some would still hold out hope in the newcomer's eschatological promise, with Frederick II apparently writing to the English king in 1241 that those Mongols had come to purify the Christians of their sins. However, the idea that they were coming to help would become increasingly untenable, and Matthew Paris would soon be describing them in his writing as a detestable race of Satan. Today's episode is about how the Prester John narratives respond to all of this. To a substantial degree, that response was going to involve characters who I've covered before on this podcast, back in its earlier days when I was talking about the friars who made trips east into Mongol territory. I won't repeat their stories here, but I will go back to what they had to say about Prester John, as the question of the priest-king's actual location became more concrete, as the vague idea of somewhere Mount East, ran up against travel to real-world locations, and into an increasing number of first-hand reports from very real somewheres in the East. With the map being colored in, there was going to be less room left to place Prester John on his bejeweled throne, and much more space for skepticism. Where was Prester John? What did those who traveled to his supposed homelands see of him? How did they explain what they saw, or more importantly, what they didn't see? When did the tide of the Prester John narrative take a turn? One might mark that point as being sometime before 1235, when Richard of San Germano wrote in his chronicle that King Andrew II of Hungary had sent a message to Pope Honorius III, telling Honorius of the approaching Mongol leader, referring to that leader as King David, who is called Prester John in the common tongue. David and his armies had journeyed for seven years since they left India, Honorius would have read, carrying with them the body of the blessed Thomas the Apostle, and in one day, they killed 200,000 Russians and Cumans. That association between the Mongol Khans and St. Thomas would not last. The one between them and Prester John 
would need to be revised. In the mid-1240s, Friar Giovanni da Pian del Carpine made his long, long way east, starting from Lyon in April of 1245. Already in his 60s at the time of his departure, he would be more than two years on the road, making his way east through the lands of the Rus, going north of the Caspian Sea and to the camp of Batu Khan. Then, on even further east, to witness the elevation of a new great khan, Guyuk, the son of Ogadai, at a camp near Karakorum. And he would return alive from these travels, leaving a written report of what had happened and his observations on the Mongols and their history. For Carpine, Prester John was not someone to be looked to with hope, not someone expected to soon come riding over the crest of the hill with his unstoppable Christian army. For Carpine, he was not King David. He was a kind of side note to Mongol history, to the history of their invasion of India. Genghis Khan, Carpine's telling went, had been busy for some time with the conquest of the Karakatai, with sieges that had seen molten silver hurled upon them from the walls, and then tunneling under those walls, taking every part of their emperor's lands, save for one, which was located in the sea. After that, Genghis Khan had rested for a time, and he had sent one of his sons into India. The Mongol army captured lesser India, populated by, quote, black Saracens, who were called Ethiopians. Then, the Mongols had gone on into Greater India. The king of Greater India, none other than Prester John himself, had gathered up his Christian army and readied for battle. Ahead of his fighters, he had positioned copper figures on horseback, hollowed out and filled with Greek fire with men at bellows placed behind each. When the Mongols attacked, they did so in the face of terrifying, all-consuming streams of this Greek fire, backed up by volley after volley of arrows. Prester John had, quote, repelled the Mongols from his borders, Carpine concluded, nor have we ever heard that they returned to them again. I should note here that Greek fire appears to have been a later addition, and perhaps not one made by Carpine himself. If it's the case that it wasn't, then this later addition may actually obscure an original meaning, that the copper figures spewed a screen of dark smoke across the battlefield, but not actually streams of fire. I should further note that the whole episode of bronze statues blasting forth smoke and or flames may have been drawn from the Alexander romance in which they were used to frighten opposing elephants. This brief Carpine passage on Prester John is placed between one on the very real conquest of the Karakatai and an entirely fanciful one on a people the Mongols encountered on their way home from India. The women were human in form, but the men took that of dogs, and when the winter was at its coldest, 
rolled in the sand and freezing water to create an impenetrable coat of icy armor. This they were to kill and maim many Mongols and drive them from their lands. The bit about the ice-armored dogmen is reported to have been heard from some Russian clerics at the Khan's court, frequent sources of information for the friar. No mention, though, as to where the Prester John information came from. Wherever it was from, the Carpini account did the job of separating the priest-king from the Mongol Khan, the belief that they were one and the same being no longer plausible and sequestering him away from the Khan's conquests in a place of safety and power, a place from which his story could be recovered and given new life. Other tellings would be less open-ended. Within a few short years of Carpine's departure, Simon of San Quentin was also headed east. As with the Franciscan Carpine, the Dominican Simon would also be looking to convert the Mongols, and like Carpine, whose visit had been answered with a letter directing the Pope to instead come and submit to the Khan, Simon and his colleague Asculon of Lombardy would be unsuccessful, really spectacularly so in their case. In a demonstration of startling diplomatic failure, their deaths would actually be ordered by their host on three separate occasions for disrespect before they'd be allowed to return home. Despite this apparent blundering, Simon would return safely home, and at least some of their account would survive in the writing of Vincent of Beauvais. That's where we can find their version of the Prester John story, which I'll read a passage from here. Quote, from ancient times, Tartaria was subject to the king of India, and up till that time calmly and peacefully paid him the tribute that was due. When the aforesaid king asked for the customary tribute from them, he also ordered that some of them submit themselves to compulsory service, either in the armies or in work. They began complaining at this offense from the hand of their lord, and took counsel whether to simply obey him or to withstand him as much as possible. That was when Genghis Khan entered the story, and he, who seemed most sagacious and venerable, gave counsel that they oppose their king's order. Then, quote, they conspired against their lord King David, namely the son of once lord and emperor of India, Prester John, and cunningly plotted against him. Roused by the possibility of shaking off their servitude and obtaining triumph, with a huge number of them departing from their own land, with bows and arrows and clubs or staffs, strengthened by their more powerful weapons, they invaded the land of their lord simultaneously from two directions, and completely saturated it with an effusion of blood. But King David, hearing of their unexpected coming, and being in no way strong enough to resist them, when he tried to flee from one section of the army, he was prevented and besieged by the other, and at length he was cut to pieces, limb by limb, 
along with his whole family, except for one daughter. Namely, the surviving daughter, which Genghis Khan took to wife, and from whom, so it is said, he produced sons. So that was all quite specific, quite detailed, much more so than the accounts in Carpine or Alberic, and there's more of it too, on the rise of Genghis Khan and the structure of the Mongol army, on an Nestorian monk who served first King David and then the Khan, on the Mongol plan, by the devil's instigation, to subjugate the whole world, and their success in extending from Tartaria almost to the rising of the sun, and from the rising of the sun to the Mediterranean Sea. There was enough detail to the material on Genghis, David, and the daughter, that you might wonder if there wasn't some truth to the whole story as indeed there was. There'll be more on that later, but first, a quick break. Our next source on the Prester John question comes from the mid-1250s journey of yet another traveler from the early days of the podcast from William of Rubric, the Franciscan missionary, much celebrated for his objective observations. Regarding Prester John, William can best be described as unimpressed. He did not deny that there had been a King John, and he did not sequester that story safely away in unconquered parts of India, at a safe distance from the Mongol threat. So there was a ruler named John, William said, and he was a Christian, an historian. There was such a man, William said, and he died. He died without an heir, and been replaced by his brother, someone who is described here as, quote, having abandoned the worship of Christ, followed idols, keeping priests of idols with him, all of whom call upon demons and soothsayers. That brother had moved in force against his neighbors, tired of the way they were always stealing from his people's flocks. But a new leader had rallied those neighbors, uniting them and taking them to victory over John's brother and pretty much everyone else in the vicinity. The story is basically similar to Simon's, one which, as I said, had some truth to it. Both do. Both being somewhat confused versions of events from Temujin's rise to power, his path to becoming Genghis Khan. According to Simon and William, Prester John was not a near-omnipotent lord, wielding armies and riches beyond measure. Not anything close to that. He was just a sometime ally and regional rival of the Mongol Khans, long ago trampled beneath their advancing might. The Nestorians called him King John, William says, and they used to say ten times more about him than was the truth. For in this way, the Nestorians who come from those parts make great rumors from nothing. And when I crossed through his fields, 
no one knew anything about him. No one except for a few Nestorians. Prester John had been there. He had been found. But he had already been crushed and no longer mattered. It's an interesting story, and one wonders how William and Simon came by it. The Mongols were no strangers to psychological warfare, were not by any means diplomatically naive, and they had these people showing up, these visitors from afar, with questions about a certain priest-king. He was Christian, those visitors said, very powerful, and he was said to rule over lands out in this direction. Did their Mongol hosts know of such a man? Oh yes, those hosts may well have answered, winking to one another as they did so. We squished him years ago. You could see how such a connection might be made, how such a connection might be made to stick. Maybe instead, local Nestorians made the connection for the visitors. They may have had their own reasons. Maybe the Mongols did it. Perhaps out of an honest misunderstanding. Perhaps less honest. There is at least one relevant example of their diplomatic use of the Prester John story. When they were lobbying Louis IX to attack Egypt simultaneously with their own assault on Baghdad, their Nestorian envoys informed the king that the great Khan was a Christian, and his mother was the daughter of Prester John. That Nestorian presence, along with the Mongols' religious tolerance, made such stories easier to sell. The narrative of a very real, but quite unspectacular Prester John, who'd fallen victim to the advancing Mongols, would become the dominant one over the next century. You find some version of it repeated, or at least alluded to, in the mid-13th century work of Matthew Paris, and you could read it in that of Roger Bacon in the late 1260s, where Roger, known to have spoken with William after the friar's return, wrote of a King John about whom there was accustomed to be such a great rumor, and about whom many false things have been written and said. You read much of the same narrative in the late 13th century Syriac Chronicle by a Catholicos of the Syriac Orthodox Church named Bar Hebraeus. There also, you hear of a Christian King John who had once held power over Genghis Khan, but then was completely destroyed. He himself was killed, and his women, sons, and daughters were taken into captivity. And it gets repeated in other sources too, well on into the 14th century. Jean de Joinville, looking back on Louis IX's involvement in the Seventh Crusade, would tell of the king's representatives hearing a version of the story from the Mongols, while the Franciscan Odric of Pordenone would say little more of passing through Prester John's lands than that, quote, not one hundredth part is true of that which was said of him, as though it were undeniable. This new framing of Prester John, as someone much weaker and indeed deader than before, 
with all the confusion over different figures in Mongol history that went with it, was a compelling one, seeming to consign the priest-king to the disappointment section as far as Latin Christians were concerned. His intervention in the Holy Land had been promised, and in the Fifth Crusade, quite imminently expected. But he'd turned out to have been nothing more than a bit of an Osoran in the Mongols' local sphere of power, and not even always a particularly sympathetic one. In some of these tellings, it is the Mongols or their leader who are sometimes paired off with positive biblical references, are, in a sense, Christianized, while Prester John goes abandoned by God for some failure of faith or arrogance. However, we haven't quite gotten to perhaps the most influential Prester John texts of the era. One of them was, one would now say, ghost-written, and many have since doubted its protagonist did much of what he'd said. The other, actually the more suspect of the two, was the work of an at least in part armchair traveler who cobbled it together from the reports of others. Both would still be more impactful than any of these other sources I've mentioned here, more than any traveling friar. Each would take quite a different approach to the Prester John issue. In the closing years of the 13th century, one Marco Polo, recently returned from his many years abroad, dictated what he'd seen to fellow prisoner Rusticello of Pisa. And of course, it wasn't all about Prester John. That was actually only a very small part of what he had to say. But then again, he did have quite a lot to say in general. Marco Polo's Prester John content added detail to the by now familiar story of a subordinate, not yet Genghis Khan, successfully rising up against the priest king. It's a much more developed narrative in which Ong Khan, who, Marco assures us, is the Prester John of whose kingdom everyone speaks, senses the imminent power of his subjects and tries to disperse them, only to see them fade safely away into the desert. Genghis Khan unites those subjects, making them into the kind of force that Prester John had feared. He demands John's daughter in marriage, a demand to which John does not react diplomatically. Marco Polo tells of Genghis's astronomers predicting their lord's victory, and then he tells of that victory, Prester John's death, and Genghis's conquests that followed. But that's not the end of the story. Unlike some of these other versions, Marco Polo's Prester John isn't entirely a creature of the past. For Prester John's story was not finished with his death. His descendants ruled as provincial kings under the power of the great Khan. Each king became Prester John, the name, as it sometimes did, becoming a title that could be passed down. As with many Prester John reports of the time, Marcos splices the priest-king on to Mongol history, but then he extends the story, bringing it up to date with news of Prester John's descendants 
something which Giovanni de Montecorvino, a missionary in Yuan, China, would soon also attest to. As for that other, highly influential source of this era, which I mentioned, the one to rival Marco Polo in immediate and lasting impact, that would take a different direction. For that, we turn to the pseudonymous 14th century travel writer, John Mandeville. For the Mandeville author, one of, or arguably the, great medieval syncretist, you find everything, all at once. There are great Khans, and there is Prester John, but the one has not defeated the other. The great Khan always marries John's daughter, but then John always marries the Khans. The two great lords are set safely apart from one another, the Khan in Cathay and the priest-king in an India separated into many islands by the rivers that flow forth from paradise. To the Prester John of the Mongol world and of early 13th century history, the Mandeville author adds back in all the wonders of the 12th century priest-king, the one with the 72 provinces whose kings all submitted to him and served at his command, the one with the palaces full of emerald, gold, amethyst, and sapphire, the one whose lands included geographical oddities such as a river of rocks, and were walked upon by living ones such as horned men. The Mandeville author doesn't just put a lot of the Prester John letter material back into the mix, they also add this or that detail from other sources, coloring in the priest-king's realm with such features as the Valley of Devils, previously reported by Franciscan travelers to the east, and with the old man of the mountain, that wealthy lord whose mountain fortress, featuring wine fountains, beautiful people, and clockwork birds, was used, along with strong drugs, to promise paradise and to bend visitors to his bidding and forge them into his assassins. He is not, here in this version of the story, associated in any way with Islam. Away from the restrictions of the Mongol dominance and Franciscan observations, Prester John's islands could include flesh-eating giants who raised sheep, malevolent women who had precious gems in their eyes and could kill a man with their sight, and women who, quote, had serpents in their bodies that stung their husbands on the penis. With all those islands set among the rivers of paradise, a writer could really allow themselves to wander among feathered people who walked on water as easily as land, to include the incursions of King Alexander, and somewhere the author was decent enough to admit he hadn't personally visited, a place of dragons, unicorns, and innumerable blue-and-white elephants. The Mandeville author really re-established a sense of wonder in the Prester John story, wrenching it back from the troubling realities that had overtaken it. And in Mandeville, Prester John had a powerful champion, much more so than all those other accounts of the Mongols having killed and conquered the priest-king. 
For all that those Franciscans and Dominicans had been skeptical as to the actual power of Prester John after their travels in Asia, it was the Mandeville text that would be shared most widely, to the point that one of Mandeville's sources, Odoric of Pardenone, who I mentioned earlier, would sometimes be introduced in copies of his writing as a, quote, companion of the knight Mandeville in India, to the point that Christopher Columbus would have an annotated copy of it. Reports were filtering back into the Latin Christian world that Prester John was not, and had never been, someone to invest your hopes in. But then, there was this widely copied work, running counter to that whole narrative. Although the bulk of the sources I've referenced here in this episode would have you believe it, Prester John was not dead and buried. Although reports were arriving of the awe-inspiring power of the Mongols and the stark invisibility of Prester John, the story of the priest king was not to be discarded, not for quite some time yet. But there would be changes. By the time that John Mandeville returned from his quote-unquote journey, or, if you prefer, by the time its author completed their text, those changes had already begun to appear. They'd been popping up for a while. The first traces more than a century earlier, but starting to gain steam in the first half of that 14th century. On a 1310 map, since destroyed during World War II, on another from the 1330s, in texts from around that same time by Jordanus de Severac and Jacob of Verona, and before then by John of Carignano. In the next century, that change would really take hold. It wouldn't be entirely constant. Prester John's location never would be and there'd still be texts which placed him in India, in Asia. But a new wave of writings was coming, and Prester John was moving to Ethiopia. Next episode, that's where we'll be going too. If you are listening to the Patreon, expect me back shortly with a little something extra. If not, expect me back with the next Prester John episode. Or maybe something special for Halloween. Either way, thank you for listening. I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.